Hey, what is up, y'all? Welcome to the first episode of Beyond the Swing. And the purpose of this show is to talk to just the most fascinating people in the game of golf and even outside of golf that have great stories to tell about performance, have a lot of experience creating it, whether it's players, coaches, fitness people, and just really going down a wormhole to just keep discovering secrets behind high performance and things that you can use and just having real organic conversations and seeing where things go. I'm really excited about this show. I'm excited about a lot of the guests we got coming up. I and mean, we have some absolute goats when it comes to players, coaches, and just some fascinating things we're going to cover along the way. So I'm really excited about this show and to share with you. I'm really excited you're here listening at the launch of this. So I want to dive right in with my guy, Brady Briggs, who is one of the absolute goats when it comes to coaching and high performance. And he's just always got fascinating things to say, fascinating stories. We talk a little about Anthony Kim and his time around him. Really cool stuff coming up in this episode. So let's dive in. Let's go beyond that swing. Hey, what's up? I'm your host, Kyle Drink, and we're going beyond the swing. So what's up, man? Um, it's about 73 degrees this morning, 7 a.m. here in Hawaii. It's, um, it's not, not a bad life. No, it's not a bad life. Sun's just coming up. Sunrises here are spectacular. So, um, it's awesome. I've got, um, Parker McLaughlin in town. So, uh, short game chef, as he's known on Instagram. Oh, okay. <laughs> We're doing some, uh, teaching. He's doing some short game clinics with me. So he's from Oahu originally. Um, great guy. Really good technique, too. He's, he's excellent. So he's, uh, so, thing I like about him is he's all this stuff is very uh, neutral mechanically. What so, do you mean by that? You know, you can go on two ends. You've got like Seekman's super finesse, you know, with all the pitch shots, you know, so it's, it's everything's just checked a lot. And, you know, obviously, Siegman adjusts the setup a lot for different types of lies, you know, downhill, uphill, side hills. And I think Siegman's great. I, I mean, I like this stuff a lot. And then you may have some other guys like uh, Gabe Herstedt, who I teach full swing twos. Great guy. It has probably one of the sickest short games I've ever seen. Gabe's a little more on the down, a little more leading edge, you know, a little more dig. And uh, I pick Parker's phone, like right in that middle ground where everything's mm-hmm. a lot more neutral. So, he's really, I think he's really effective, you know, a lot of people. So, but I've enjoyed spending the last couple of days. So it's been, it's been educational. You know, I learn every time somebody's out here. Is there uh with someone like that, is there anything that contradicts like what Seekman does or anything like that? I mean, I feel like a lot of those stuff is what they, they works for them, you know? So like Stan Utley, for example, talks in his earlier books about like a really rounded motion, but he's not really that mm-hmm. rounded. You know, it's interesting that you say that because obviously Stan Utley was a very good putter and had a great short game on the PGA Tour, right? And, um, you know, Gabe's, Gabe's won on the PGA Tour and Parker's won on the PGA Tour. So these are all guys that can play. You know, play. They're really, really good players. Uh, Siegman has been around the game forever. His brother was on tour. He was a good player. So I think you're right. They all have what they do. I think even as coaches, we have that, right. We have our own, you know, this is what we do as players. And then they teach. Sometimes they get into, into a space where they're teaching 
a little bit more of a of an extreme side of something and it sort of defines them like you said with utley i mean we all know utley as being wow it's so arky you know mm-hmm. and so down with a pot and you know and I, I don't know that he's doing that himself at all or that everybody he teaches he teaches that too but you hear that about him sure and i think I think that's one of the problems of associating yourself with any system as a coach, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, anybody that's a Mac guy is a Mac guy. You know, if you're a stack and tilter, you're stack and tilt, you know, you, you may not teach that system to everybody and you might even not teach it a lot anymore. But once you're labeled like that, it's a, it's a difficult thing to get away from because that's how people define you. So you gotta well, be careful with that. So, so like the stack and tilt guys, and I, I don't know if you remember that uh, top hundred summit we were at. Um, gosh, was it Duke? But I mean, there was about fist fights coming out sure. over some of the stuff. I mean, literally in each other's faces. I'm, I'm sure you remember who I'm talking about. But yes, <laughs> arguing about like the technique. And I remember sitting looking at these guys. I'm like, you've both been very successful. So mm-hmm. like, what's, what's the point of this besides maybe I'm right, you're wrong type thing. But I, I think that's where things can get really iffy for the player, especially is like you have everybody trying to discredit each other and sound like the smartest person in the room. It's childish. It is you know? right. It, it's just childish. And, you know, we could argue the, the merits of any system. You could argue the merit of a system, Right should you teach a system you know but ultimately who cares i mean we're are we really that self-important that we have to sit here you know like you said get it get nearly go to blows over some stupid you know pivot i mean it's so dumb mm-hmm. you know which the, the self-importance we have as coaches is just shocking you know just we teach golf i mean it's not like we're doing anything critical to you know the well-being of mankind here man my god we're just trying to help them hit the ball a little bit better it's so dumb i mean it's kind of fun is because you 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 were never participating in that stuff you know and that was not your your scene and for me like there was a time in my life where i was you know i was young and dumb and adamant about what i believed in and now i realized i didn't know much then i hardly know more now i think i just know that i don't know that much now and back then you think you know everything and i think these guys just get they just get so boxed into their space it's just any criticism at all and they're they're flying off the handle it's a waste of energy man yeah i mean it was it was an interesting scene to be put around you know what was labeled as all the greatest coaches i guess um it was a really interesting experience to me and i just naturally gravitated towards you know you mike malizia uh people like that who are more willing to learn and humble and would have conversations. I mean, I always appreciated you because you're the dude out there in basketball shorts and a goatee. Like you just kind of break the norm of the game. You know, you're not the, uh, what's that? The top button and straight yeah. bill or whatever, you know? And, and when I would hear you talk to players and kind of get in their face a little bit, like I really appreciated that you weren't the kiss ass. This show is brought to you by mental golf type. And if you haven't heard of mental golf type yet, then you need to go to mentalgolftype.com and check this out out because this is an incredible, powerful mental game of performance system that you can implement very easily because it is tailored to how you and how you are mentally wired. So some of the questions you might have had along the way of, 
why can I perform great on practice? Why do I hit it great on the range and I go on the course and it's something totally different? Why am I inconsistent? Why can I score so well one day and the next is something totally different? Well, all of those questions have to do with how you are mentally wired, how you are using your mental energy, how you're seeing targets, how you're making decisions. This is all stuff that has to do with your mental golf type and you could take your free assessment and figure out a lot of things really quick for absolutely free at mentalgolftype.com so you definitely want to get over there and check that out because I can't even imagine trying to coach players without knowing that information uh, so again check out mentalgolftype.com you won't regret it now let's get to that show so I was like man That's you're true. the dude I want to know more about <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. Um, it's definitely gotten me in a little bit of trouble over the years. But the good thing about that is I don't have to worry about which Brady I presented to somebody, you know, mm -hmm. because it's just always going to be the genuine article, the, the sometimes idiot, you know, who's, you know, I'm passionate about what I believe in. But I also think, like, I don't feel like we're doing anything that important. And, and I just, it's just so stupid. Like, we, it's funny because people like us find each other. Mm -hmm. We really do. You know, we do, we will find each other, whether it's Tony Ruggiero or, you know, Ed I. Bargwin, who is, I adore. I think Ed's like the guy in this business and people don't even know about Ed, but man, is he good. And he's mm -hmm. so smart and such a good dude. And there's a lot of people like that. You know, Chris Como's like that. You know, there's certain really, really good people out there that don't take themselves too seriously and have a good perspective. And we end up kind of hanging out because otherwise you're just bored. You know, the, the, the other group is kind of boring, at least to me, they are. So Cuomo, I mean, interesting, right? Because he's kind of young. I don't think he's much older than me if if we're not the same age. Um, you know, and he gets that spotlight of helping Tiger. Sure. Did you get? Did you talk to him much about that? Yeah, I mean, the thing about Chris is I, I don't know anybody who's gained more respect from more people in this business than Chris. Chris, when, uh, when I was, you know, teaching a bunch of really good players and, you know, had, had some really good Southern California guys and girls, you know, and Daniel King and, you know, I had Anthony was at the range. Anthony came at the range all the time and Hagee and all these guys I was teaching him. Some of them were just practicing there, you know, uh, Anthony was working with Schreiber at the time and we had a really interesting group, you know, of players that were hanging out at the range that, that I was teaching at and Chris was Chris would come by and hang out and talk. And this was when Chris wasn't even really teaching. You know, he was young and he did that everywhere. I mean, the guy was just, his thirst for knowledge and information was, I've never seen anything like it. He would fly across the country mm -hmm. and ask a guy, hey, can I come out and watch you teach? Can I come talk? He did that with everybody. And so what he ended up doing was he never went in with a chip on his shoulder. He never went in saying, you're wrong and I'm right. He went in saying, what do you know and can you tell me about it? And because of that, you know, as we all get flattered as a teacher, right? Oh, this kid wants to know. Oh, I'm, I'm wonderful. He's going to come ask yeah. me a bunch of questions about how great I am. And it, flatter, it flatters you, you know, that you have somebody that cares about what you think about the swing, what you think about teaching. And he did that. He didn't do it to ingratiate himself in any negative way. He just was naturally curious. You know that about this person, you know? Mm -hmm. So by the time he started to get, you know, some really good players and get some notoriety, Everybody liked Chris, you know, everybody had talked to Chris. We all knew Chris. We all knew him to be humble and, and, you know, interested and curious. And uh, he, nobody's done a better job of that, of gaining knowledge. I mean, Chris would take certifications and things he didn't even think were necessarily true. 
You just want to know the system. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's a pretty brilliant thing. You know, he didn't do it for to be Chris Como. You know, like he's going to be sure. the, the number two now guy in the world of golf instruction. I don't know how we're ranked. That's just so stupid. But you know how he's behind Butch, but he did it the right way. He got information from everybody and came to his conclusions. And I hats off to him. And he studied science and. He's just a genuinely a, a very intelligent person. I think he's gone about it the right way. Hats off to him. He deserves the success he's had for sure. Yeah. I mean, have you, did you ever talk to him much about his time with Tiger or is he pretty quiet about it? You know, I think he's, he has to be, Yeah, he has to be quiet about it. You know, that's part of the deal from the very beginning. And it's funny because I don't know how much he can talk about it, but those of us that care about him, like I haven't, ask him really really any questions at all about it because i'm like i can't really talk about it you know i'm not going to put him in that spot in that spot just yeah you know he he's probably sharing what he can share and you know hey he 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 benefited from it and so did tiger it was a win-win for both of them yeah you know so you mentioned anthony kim i mean that's definitely something i wanted to talk and get as much out of you as i could so i actually just watched this documentary um i didn't even know it was out i don't know how long it's been out but about the 2008 Ryder cup and you know basically they're talking about what azinger did and how he used personality types which is you know what i'm doing with mental golf type so naturally i was drawn to it and there was a scene where and it kind of reminded me of one of the stories you told but there's a scene where you know kim and mickelson were two down with like three to go or something and azinger said he just kind of kept looking at kim until he's finally like what and he goes dude, you're not showing me shit out here. <laughs> and he goes, don't worry, coach, we're, we're not going to lose. <laughs> and then just turned it yeah. on. So, you know, I'm like sitting here now Googling before you got on Anthony Kim. And it's just like these, uh, what's the, what's the word I want to use? Just like mysteries about what's going on, where he's at. Yeah. You know, I saw yeah. a picture of them with Schreiber recently and everyone's like, whoa, like what's going on? Yeah. Is he coming back? Yeah. Yeah. Like, so yeah. what do you know, Brady? What do I know? Well, well, first I'll, of all, let's, like uh, we go, let's go back to like just your okay. time around Anthony, and I and we know you you didn't coach him. I know you're very humble in that, but like I want to know the juiciest stuff you got on Anthony. Well, you know, he started with Brad Scherfe. That's when I first met him, and he was a young kid. He was under ten years old, and there's a range in Southern California called Studio City Driving Range, and it's sort of like a place that everybody had to go to at some point, right in the middle of San Fernando Valley. Um, all always movie stars and you know big time athletes and all that that's where they'd go and hit balls because it was lit at night and anthony was already a star at 10 years old at that driving range which was hard to be because there were many stars like stallone would practice there and you name the, the the guy right so anthony's reputation began then and you know i knew of anthony at that point because i was teaching and he was a young kid and <clears throat> everybody would talk about him and after Scherfe, he went to Schreiber. And in the middle, like he would always come to the range and practice. And, you know, if he, I, I'd look at his swing and steal videos of his swing because it was so fun to, to watch Anthony practice and stuff. And, you know, he'd obviously ask me a question occasionally, but like I've told everybody, I didn't teach Anthony Kim how to swing golf club. I don't, I don't know if anybody taught Anthony Kim how to swing golf club. You know, mm-hmm. Anthony was just that talented. I, I'd say Adam absolutely deserves a lot of the credit as does Brad Sherfy. You know, they both were part of his development. But the thing about Anthony was like Anthony was the belt buckle guy with the diamond encrusted, you know, you know, AK on it his whole life. 
I mean, that's who he was. He was he was bigger than life as a little kid. You know, he was not he was not what you would say would be a traditional golfer in any way. You know, he did he liked to play basketball. Um, he loved to talk trash. He, I mean, the kid was the single best trash talker I have ever been around. I've been around some really good ones, including myself. <laughs> you cannot rattle that kid, man. I swear, I tried so many times to rattle him. I'll give you a great story. So we're at Sherwood and he's playing big money match and he's got about a 20 foot on the last hole to win a bunch of money and stands over it. One of the guys he's playing against is standing right in his, you know, his field of vision. Like as he's, he's going this way, but as he's, he could look up and he can see him. So after he's standing over it and he gets ready to go and he, he looks up and he goes, this is going to hurt a little. <laughs> and he goes back down and makes it, you know, this is one of the million Anthony stories, you know, that are so fun. But the guy, like, he had a gear. He had a gear. It was so weird. Like, I've never seen a player be able to just, you know, bumping along, playing golf, whatever, not caring, doesn't care. And then something flips a switch in him. Usually it's somebody saying something. And then it's on. And the guy could do it. Like, he was he was just so much fun to be around, to watch actually compete. Because he didn't care about the golf at all. He could care less if it was Augusta National or the or the John Deere. It, it made no difference to him whatsoever. He was in the, in it for the for the thrill of competition, and he loved it. He loved it. The Ryder Cup. I mean, I can tell you some stories that are off the record about you know some of the things that were going on with him and Sergio. But dude, nobody wanted to see that guy in that Ryder Cup one on one. Not one guy, and the last guy that wanted to see him was Sergio. And AK was licking his chops and. I mean, it was a done deal as soon as the pairings came out what was going to happen in that match. So Anthony was just so fun and so such a pain in the butt. You know, at the range, he'd constantly make people pissed off. You know, he'd like <clears throat> get in the face of somebody he shouldn't get in the face of, and he'd walk around like he owned the place. And typical kid, but to the nth degree. That was so fun, man. Like, just just such a bigger-than-life character. And, and you know, had that sound, man. Anybody talks about Anthony, talks about, dude, when he hit it, it just sounded different. Mm -hmm. Anthony had speed, you know, he had speed at the bottom and he could hit any shot you ever could imagine. He used to stand right in front of my tent. I had this 10 by 10, you know, an easy up that I put my, my JC video on her, you know, and he'd stand yeah. three feet away from the tent facing me with a wedge. And I go, Anthony, don't do it. You know, and he'd look right at me. I'm like, Anthony, don't do it. And he did a flop shot right over the freaking tent from three feet away from it, over my head. You know, it was just AK, you know, just AK. So fun, man. So we, we really, I mean, it's almost part of his mis, his mystery now. His, he's he's Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know? mm -hmm. I mean, he's, he's the guy that walked away. Nobody walks away from professional golf. Nobody does that. Too much money. Too much fame and fortune. AK did. He just is that weird guy, man. So he's forever going to be He's going to be somebody who, wow, what could have Anthony been if he really mm. kept playing? You know, if he didn't get hurt, if he really wanted to play, we don't know. And that's what makes it so fun. It's such a fun so, story. Did he really get hurt? Yeah. Yeah. He had injuries. I mean, he had an Achilles tear and he had some other stuff going on. And, you know, he definitely got hurt. I mean, it wasn't, a, he wasn't faking it. Um, gotcha. And he worked, he worked out. He was, he was working out hard. I mean, I don't know how much you know about Schreiber. And, you know, Adam was, Adam was on like, 
he was on some other plane too, man. Like he was doing yeah, some you, weird. You told me he was kind of a quirky guy, but so it's, yeah, yeah so tell me just, about Adam. Just smart, super smart, innovative. You know, another dude where, you know, another guy when you look him from the outside, you don't see him as a golf professional. A teacher, it doesn't seem like that. But so smart, you know. He was, he was, him and Anthony. Anthony would go work on his golf swing in the gym. I never heard of that before. I still don't think guys do that. Like if Anthony didn't hit a good, him and Trevor would go to the gym and they'd work out a different way. Wouldn't hit balls. I mean, I don't even. I can't even begin to imagine the depths of knowledge from Adam Shriver and how smart he was on a lot of things. And. Chris was hanging out with Adam a lot. They're very, very good friends. I mean, this, this is sort of like another plane of thinking about golf swing and golf instruction, those two guys. And, you know, I don't pretend to know anything that Adam knows. I just know that the guy knows a heck of a lot more about stuff than I do. And if you look at his players now, I mean, his players are doing well. They really are. He took one of my players. I get fired all the time. You know, as coaches, we're always getting fired. There was a kid named David Lipsky that was on the PGA Tour. And David, I taught during that same time with all of those players I had. David was probably the one player like out of that whole group. If I had to pick a player who was never going to make it, it was David Lipsky. Hmm. He was never going to get the tour. He didn't hit it far enough. He wasn't explosive. His putting wasn't very good. He had a lot of greens, but it wasn't really long. You know, he goes to Northwestern. He ends up having a pretty good short game there, right with. Uh, Who's the coach? I forget. Pat. Goss. Uh, yeah, Pat. Goss. Yeah, Pat Goss. So Pat, Pat did a great job with his with his short game. All of a sudden, somewhere there, I got fired during the Northwestern years, you know. And then he bounced around in Europe for a while. Ended up on Corn Ferry, on the PGA Tour. And since he's been back, and he's been with Adam for three or four years now, he's got him in the PGA Tour. Shocking, you know. So he Adam does good work. He really does. I, I wish I knew what Adam do. They could make me a better coach. And that's so true of so many guys out there, you know? You're like, ah, oh, that guy knows something. I don't know. I wish I knew that. And Adam's probably the kind of guy, if you asked him, he'd probably tell you. Because he's not he's not a guy that would try to keep it from you. Because he's a good dude. Yeah, I gotta talk to him because he's uh he seems like an interesting character. I, I met him very briefly when you were talking to him at the one of those top things and just didn't get a chance to know him very well. But so what about uh what about the Sergio stuff? Sergio stuff was pretty personal, you know, like they had a bit of an incident in the LA open and, uh, Anthony wanted him in the worst way. He wanted him personally. So the thing about AK was, like, like I said before, like you, you could just poke AK just for fun, just to get him, just to get the temperature up. He enjoyed that. You know, we are playing, I'll give you another story. We're, we're at the U S um, we're at the USAM. It's at Hazeltine. And I'm my player, Ben Fox, um, who ended up in Asia for a long time. Great kid, heck of a player. <clears throat> Quietest kid you've ever met. Could never, he would never talk trash to you. He used to drive me crazy. AK was the exact opposite. But they were both from, you know, our range. And uh, AK's coach was my friend. And he was caddying for him. His caddy was my friend. Anyways, we're in, we're in uh, Minnesota and we're playing a practice round. And we're playing with two two younger Korean kids, Ben and AK. And so late in the day, you know, just, just going through the motions of getting ready, you know, charting the course and whatnot. So 
they all tee off. The two younger Korean kids are kind of back a little bit. Ben hits a pretty decent drive, and AK just jacks one. He's just like, you know, he's he gets up there, and, and Anthony you know, looks around and goes, man, you could put a Walmart between these drives. You know, typical AK trash talk, right? So we get down there and get to Ben's ball. And I look at AK, and, and AK's just, you know, running, running. And so I said, hey, Kate, you know what sucks, dude? He goes, what's that? I'm like, when the dude hitting seven iron hits it inside your wedge, it really sucks when that happens. And Ben hadn't hit yet. So Ben doesn't participate. Ben's like, hey, hey, hey Brady, shut up. You know? So anyway, Ben hits on the green seven iron about eight feet. We get to AK's ball, and I'm like, dude, that ball's pretty close, dude. I don't know if you get inside of that, man. That's going to be a problem. So he hits it on the green about 12 feet. So we get up on the green, I get the flag, and I'm like, I'm like, AK, dude, you're away, bro. And he's just, you know, now he's pissed off at me, which is great because I was trying to get him pissed off. So, of course, he makes the putt and, you know, stares me down and he's walking off the green. That's just Anthony, like any moment to be, you know, in some confrontation with somebody, he's all about it. A lot of fun. He's just, mm -hmm. he was just really fun, man. Like he was crazy. I'll give you one more story. And I think it's really an important story because it tells a lot about attitude. I know you're interested in these things. Mm -hmm. So we've got um, the summer before Anthony goes to Oklahoma. He could have gone anywhere in the country. He said, why did you go to Oklahoma? Right. I mean, that's not a golf school, but he wanted to go because he liked the coach Reagan and, and Reagan was going to let him do what he wanted to do. Basically, he wasn't going to try and box him in. So anyway, so it's probably July. It's probably, it's probably June, something like that. I'm like, hey, AK, when are you going to, uh, when are you leaving for school? And this is the mindset of an Anthony Kim. He says, the franchise will be arriving in Norman in early August. <laughs> I mean, how great is that line? Man. This the franchise guy. will be arriving in Norman. So does anybody like know where he's at? I mean, has he really just disappeared? I mean, people know where he's at. You know, he's his his mom still lives in Los Angeles. Um, you know, Anthony. You know, you hear stories. I hear stories. I, I, you know, I hear stories about you know they can still like he he goes out and plays um, one of the courses in the desert that's super private. He'll go out and shoot sixty four. Like it was the easiest thing you've ever heard. I heard another story about him where he shot um, he shot twenty nine on the front nine at Madison club in the desert, which is, you know, incredibly exclusive place. And they, you know, there's like a slider bar. It's, it's, you know, it's like a discovery land property. So there's slider bar and all kinds of food and everything and drinks at the turn they're hanging out and he shoots 29 at the front and he's like, Hey, um, I don't play anymore. Let's, let's go back to the house. And the guy he's playing with him, like Anthony, dude, we should play the back nine and set the course records. I don't care. Let's go back to the house. I don't want to play anymore. You know, it's just AK, you know, he's just, he's just that guy. Just a legend growing. It's crazy. Have you seen the, um, like the pictures of him lately? He looks so different. He does. He's, I mean, he's, he changed a lot when he was 14 years old. I had a video of him when he was 14, 10 balls in my range and he was chunky. He was mm -hmm. chunky. I mean, he would, he'd go get food. And I remember he'd come back from Jack in the box with two jumbo jacks and two tacos and, you know, fries and, a shake. I mean, Anthony, that was who Anthony was at the time. He was kind of a chunky young kid who could flat play. And then, 
somewhere when he met Adam, he started changing his physique completely. And then he turned into this, you know, freak show physically. He was just incredibly fit and just shows you the mindset of a guy like that. You know, he's, he's capable of doing anything he wants to do. Yeah. He really is. And, and he's, his, his complete game, which people don't really understand how good Anthony was, like the two best chippers I've ever seen in person, like basic pitch shots. And Parker and I were talking about this the other day or yesterday. You know, guys that are right off the edge of the green, 15, 20 yards to the flag, have to land it on 12 and have it roll out or 15 and have it rolled out. AK was as good as anybody I've ever seen do that. So, yeah, he had all the flop shots and you know, all the, the magical stuff. But the basic vanilla pitch shot kind of was magical for him. Like it either went in or it looked like it was going to. Daniel Kang, same thing. The basic pitch shots, the ones that most people take for granted and don't practice, they were amazing at those shots. That shows you really what you need to do is you need to be able to take care of the basic stuff and hit those things fantastic. And then if you get up and down from the, you know, the ridiculous flop shot over the bunker, it looks great and everything, but is it really that it doesn't really matter as much as being really good at the basic ones. It's a really interesting thing. So Phil Mickelson, for example, you know, he's never been inside the top 20 on shorts, short game <clears throat> strokes game around the greens on PJ tour in a season. That's interesting. An interesting stat, right? <clears throat> so if you had a, if you had an impossible pitch shot, you'd, you'd take Phil Mickelson to hit it, no question about it. If you took a basic pitch shot, I would not take Phil Mickelson to hit that shot. I wouldn't hmm. do that. I would rather have a guy like Stricker, or, you know, Kevin Na or Patrick Reed or one of those guys who's just just dirty simple. You know, like club's interaction with the ground is very consistent. They're not digging the leading edge, and you know, it's not. There's nothing about it that is unusual. Just bait. like they take an underhand a ball underhand and just throw it upon the green. That's how good those guys are around the greens. Mm-hmm. Danielle was that good at that, that shot too. So it, it's interesting how we how we group a player. Well, Mickelson short games the best in the world, you know. And then you look at the numbers, you're like, well, it's not that good. Hmm. There's something's going on there. It's just all perception, you know. About I mean, Phil can hit the backward shot better than anybody right you get the flop shot better than anybody but if you had to get up and down for your life give me kevin Na. and i'll take him i'll take a guy like that i'll take stricker over over mickelson too weird mechanically yeah i mean i think that's why everybody like amateurs think that pros hit it to five feet every time because you that's what you see right so we see phil mickelson's highlights but you're right they're not showing us the one where he's uh you know just hitting it to six feet from you know, a basic pitch shot. We just see the crazy shots. Right. And That's Mickelson's mechanics makes sense that he would do that. <laughs> he can do things with the leading edge that most players wouldn't try to do, but you don't want to use the leading edge that much, you know, the hinge and hold that died with my career. You know, it <laughs> should have anyway, you know, like mm-hmm. it's horrible technique. And it was in a time where the grooves were different. The course conditions were different. I mean, the grass was longer. Now we've got these, you know, you miss a green and the lie's tight, man. It's tight. It's kind mm. of wet underneath. You can't stick the club in the ground now. You've got to be able to you gotta be able to hit it off of a green. You know what I mean? If you can't hit a pitch shot off a green, your mechanics aren't good enough. You know, right. we're talking lots of scrape, you know, lots of bruising of the ground, nothing digging inside of the ground. And if your mechanics are such that that's who you are, if you if you're to go to the practice area and you've got a 20 yard pitch shot. And you hit 30 balls, we shouldn't see that you were there. 
you shouldn't be disturbing the grass very much. If you're taking, you know, little divots out on every single shot, let's go gamble because mm-hmm. you're not going to be very good around the greens. You know, you're just going to, you're going to wear, you're going to wear a couple of those and chunk them. It's going to come out with too much heat. You know, there's just, there's just a right way. Now, technically we know what the mechanics are to hit that shot the most consistently. And that's the difference between my generation when I was playing and where these kids are coming up now. I mean, the information is so much better. Mm-hmm. It's just so much better than it was. Well, I mean, you don't see that. Dude, it is. The equipment's better. Information's better. The teaching is probably better, I think, but and the players are more fit. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're better mentally. They understand a lot of those things. They're being taught those things. I mean, it's it's impressive. Like, thank goodness, I don't have to play. I'm, I'd be horrified. You know, like these kids are they're very very good, and and that's why you see kids now that are so good, so young. You know, guys it used to be, you know, that guys wouldn't get to the tour until they were in their mid mid twenties. You know. Or, mid to late twenties. That's when they'd start to get out there. And then they'd start to learn how to work. No, not now. Mm-hmm. They're just that good in college. You know, everybody's really, really good. And it's, it's a different game. Well, do you think some of that is because it is easier? I mean, you know, I, when I was in college, I mean, with the equipment, I was hitting it 260 off the tee, you know, and I hit it over 300 yards and I'm fatter and more busted down and, <laughs> You know, so I'm that much longer just with equipment and balls. So yeah. like hitting wedges into greens versus six irons and five irons is a different game. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I choose to call it um, just more muscular instead of fatter. But you know, don't don't ever talk <laughs> oh, I'm to more, yourself. I'm that more way. fatter, man. There's no doubt. <laughs> self talk, bro. Self talk. No, I think like yeah, it's easier. I mean, I hit the driver about as far i hit it further than i did in 1986 when i graduated high school you know i'm 53 years old i I hit the driver further now than i did then sure as heck isn't because i'm stronger you know i'm bigger i'm for sure bigger but the equipment's better you know the ball is the ball's so much better i mean i don't know if you saw that thing that was on youtube a couple years ago a guy on the european tour did some testing with you know the current driver and the current ball and then he had a persimmon-headed driver and the current ball. And then he had the persimmon-headed driver and the balata. And then he did the current driver and the balata. It was fascinating watching. It was fascinating. As soon as he got, as soon as he got the old ball out, it started to get bad. And then when he put the, the persimmon head with the old ball, he's like, where's the driver head? You know, what is this thing I'm looking at down there? And he goes, and the first he could not hit the fairway. It was just you know, it was curving all over the place. And he's like, I can't swing as hard, but I got to hit the middle of the face. And this is, I can't afford to miss the face. And that was the difference, you know, like the ball curved a lot more back then mm-hmm. and miss hits you paid for significantly. And now, you know, we can off the toe of the heel and you lose a little bit. Sometimes the toe, you gain a little bit if you're a fader, like I am. And ball just goes further, stays in the air longer. Your misses aren't as bad. It's easier from that standpoint. But then the course conditions are more difficult now than they were when I was growing up. You know, everything's mowed tighter. There's more chipping areas that are tight and the greens are firmer and faster. So it, it's definitely gotten harder from, from a, you know, condition standpoint, but I think the equipment has just made the game just completely different. You know, it just isn't as hard from that standpoint as, as it used to be. So yeah. I agree with you. I think there's a good side and a bad side. I mean, I think everybody argues one or the other, but I think it's great for the amateur player. 
but Absolutely. in terms of the professional game, I mean, I hate to say this and I'll probably get criticism, but it's like, I, I don't feel like it's good because I don't feel like the best players are being rewarded. You know, it's just anybody just goes out there and slams it down there, chips it on and, you know, makes a putt. I mean, these guys are shooting 10, 11 under per round sometimes, you know, in these corn fairy events and like the, the, the Q school scores were off the charts this, this year. It was unbelievable. You shoot four under, you're not even in the hunt. Yeah, it's true on the women's side too. Yeah, you know, was, my Women's daughter was getting crazy better. It just like the last ten years. That's that's where I see like the massive jump happening now, right? Because the the guys' game that happened, and now it's sort of the norm. You know, like that paradigm shift in power happened ten years ago, and now if you're not long, you can't even get in a conversation. But now on the women's side, you see Pagden Nannan, right? Tabatanikin, uh, Fossey. Uh, <laughs> These girls are deep, man. Mm -hmm. They're deep. And the tour averages are still down. So, like, you get 93.5 miles an hour club head speed on the LPGA Tour, and then you got a girl going out there at 112, you know, mm -hmm. 114. And it's like, what the heck is that? You know, and, like, my daughter played um, a U.S. Open qualifier with Ann Van Dam. Okay. That girl's deep, man. Mm -hmm. Like, so my daughter's five foot one. Her seven iron goes 155 in the air. Pretty good. You know, mm -hmm. LPJ Tour is 141. Driving distance, probably 255. Uh, she hits it good. She's not short by any means. She's, you know, she's certainly in the, she's not long, but she's in the longer category than average. Mm -hmm. And Van Dam is hitting her driver 40 or 50 yards past my daughter. Yeah, that's wild. It is. I mean, hitting it 290 consistently. It's amazing. That's the athlete we're seeing now coming into the LPGA tour. That it was already that already happened on the guy's side, but now on the girl's side, it is like it's staggering how far some of these girls are hitting it. And we're going to see better scores coming out of them too, you know, because and it, it, it's unfortunate because it, now I know it's off on a tangent, but it drives me crazy because the guys the guys play a proportionally shorter golf course for them than the girls do. Yeah, it that's isn't close. I never thought about that. Mm -hmm. there, there's not a guy on the PGA Tour that hits a hybrid to a par four. Doesn't ever happen. You know, most of them don't even have them. But they're not hitting. They're not hitting hybrids to a par four. You know, the guys that I've worked with on the PGA Tour, most of them hit every single par five. Mm -hmm. Even par fives that are six hundred. There's players that can get to those holes. You know, the, the ladies' game is very different. You know, I mean. If you take the average distance of a, of a of an LPGA tour player and you want driver seven iron on a hole, then that hole is, you know, we're doing 245 off the tee, okay, 141, right? We're at 190 ish yards or 390 yards. That's driver seven on, on the LPGA tour, right? I mean, for a guy, driver seven iron on a par four, I mean, you know how far that is? <laughs> That's 490 yards. Right. Mm -hmm. So now we're at a hundred yards on a par four for the same driver iron into the green. That would make the golf courses, if you did the math, you know, they'd be significantly longer. It's almost 2,000 yards longer if you average that out on par threes and par fives. Well, the, the guys play a long course at 7,400 yards. Right. Do you think the girls are playing a long course at 5,400 yards? No. Right. LPJ Tour plays the Q school 6,500 yards. That's 900 yards shorter than a guy's long golf course. 
it's proportionally not even close. So the girls are playing a course that's proportionally for them way longer than the guys. So what's going to happen to the scoring? Yeah, I mean, it's not going to be as good. Exactly. But they're also so they'll scoring say, really well, though. I mean, they, they're they are, deep in I'm, some of these tournaments. They are. But the point is, like, you, like they held the NCAAs. You know, they do them back-to-back. They try and set the courses up similarly, right? But the fact of the matter is, if a if a L, average LPGA Tour player plays well on the average LPGA Tour golf course, their score is not going to be as low as the average PGA Tour player on the average PGA Tour golf course. They just don't hit it as far. It's mm-hmm. a base, basic thing about proximity. You know, there's only so much you can do. So they look at the scores and people go, "Oh, the women's game—they're not as good as the guys." That is total BS. I mean, did you see what Jin Young Ko did? I don't think I did. I haven't been watching much TV, to be fair. Jin Young Ko in the women's tour championship hit 63 greens in a row. I did see that. Think, can you think about 63 greens regulation? It's crazy. Think about nine holes. You're breaking in nine hole segments. She played seven straight nine hole rounds and never missed a green. Man, that's yeah, somebody tell me the women aren't as good as the guys. That is total BS. I've been around both games. I coach college women's golf. You know, I know you do too. I know you understand the women's game. Mm-hmm. My daughter hits the ball better than I ever could have dreamed of hitting it. She hits more fairways. She hits more greens. It's a joke how good those girls are. Like mm-hmm. they are so good. And I'm not saying they're better than the guys, but anybody that would sit there and say that the guys are better than the girls, they're nuts. They don't know anything about the girls' game. Right. These girls can flat play. And I'll tell you, it's funny because you hear, well, the average guy should watch the LPGA tour because it's more like the, the way they play. Child, please. The average guy <laughs> goes out on the LPGA tour, they would get so smoked. I mean, it would just be hysterical to watch. Mm-hmm. The girls are freaking awesome. They're amazing players across the board. And LPGA Tour Q School is a perfect example. It's 650 or 80. I don't know how many girls were there. It was, um, it was, I've never seen anything like that logistically. I mean, it's, it's over three golf courses. You have almost 700 players all playing the same tournament mm-hmm. and only 85 get through. Well, back in the day, five, 10, well, 10 years ago, you could be, four or five over and get through to the next stage. Not now, man. That many girls, 85 get through, you better be at even or better. We're going to have trouble. You know, so the scores have just plummeted on how on how difficult it is to, to move through the ranks of the LPGA Tour compared to what it used to be. Well, and to, and to show you the growth too. So if you would just get into, I, I just recently learned this because I work with some Symmetra players and stuff, but uh, if you would just register for stage one, you get Symmetra status. Yes, you do. As long Which, as you don't shoot 88 or worse. At okay, I didn't one. know that, but none of my girls would that's shoot a, 88. <laughs> thank God. No, uh, no but, that's, but yeah, that, that's a I fact. found that very so. interesting. So like a lot of girls that you know didn't get through stage one or whatever, and then COVID and people weren't traveling, they were getting a lot of events just, just because they went into stage one, which was interesting. But with the growth and like you said, all these players – I don't think, I mean, they might still give out the status, but I don't think any of these girls are going to see an event. Because they're not going to see an event. Yeah. And and the problem, here's the problem with the women's game, is that on the men's side, you've got Corn Ferry, Latin America, PJ Tour China, Canada. And then here you've got what, there's, I forget all the number of tours that we've got, little smaller developmental tour, tours, you know, where, where people can move along with their career. You can go to Asia, 
Europe. I mean, there's a lot of avenues that you can go into. Not on the women's side. They just start there. You have the LPJ Tour. You've got Symmetra. And then you've got nothing. You have nothing. Yeah, this, you this have, WAPT is growing quite a bit. It is. That's like the next is. avenue. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. But, but, but I mean, the Women's All Pro Tour, the top five on their money list, get exempt through the first stage of Q School. Okay, that's a nice thing. But you're traveling around the southeastern part of the country. There's not a ton of events. I mean, they're, they're trying to get to go. You know, they're doing a decent job of it, and and it's gaining a little momentum, which is good. But that's that's the only feeder tour to Symmetra. Mm-hmm. There's nothing else you can go play it. And then, like, if you're not playing in that, you go to Cactus, which is on in Arizona. You know, based in Arizona, mm-hmm. that has zero. You cannot get one start on Symmetra. You win a Cactus event. And say here's your check. Thank you for coming. There's there's no like way to get some some starts on some metra from Cactus, and and you know from Women's All Pro Tour, if you finish first or second, I think in the event you get into the next Symmetra event. So that's good. So the girls that have gone through Q School, at least if they place Women's All Pro Tour, and they finish in the top two, they can get a Symmetra start, and that starts critical because then they can get money, official money on Symmetra. But it's so tough, man. It is not an easy thing. Like you look at the road ahead as a, as a young, aspiring female professional trying to get the LPGA Tour, and it's a daunting task. There's just not a lot of options. The guys have a lot more options, and there's a lot more money. Mm-hmm. You know, So it, it, if you have a girl, if a girl gets the LPGA Tour, let me tell you, they can play. They're good players. They mm-hmm. put in a lot of work and a lot of time to get to that point. That did not happen accidentally. You know, they, they're amazing. I'm not saying the guys turn. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying it's just harder for women to get to the LPGA Tour than this for guys to get the PGA Tour. And it's harder to stay. Yeah. You know, I mean, top 125, get on you know, full card next year. Congratulations. You got better status than the people who came off Corn Ferry, right? Because you're top 125 from the year before. LPGA Tour, it's top 80. That's a different world, man. You know, mm-hmm. like it's a completely different universe on the LPGA tour. It's a, it's a tougher tour that way. I hope they make it a little bit easier and somebody puts some money into a developmental tour. It, maybe it is the women's all pro tour that we're going to see that, that gets to that point. But I wish they'd find some better options because we're probably missing out on some really good players that either can't afford to play, can't afford to travel, whatever that is, because it's just too difficult to get. Well, and it's interesting you say that I get it. I'm involved with this startup um what's gonna be interesting i can't give too many details just yet but that's basically a venture capital fund for players um and the way they're doing it the way i got involved is because it's really player friendly where a lot of these times these players have to like sell shares in themselves and you know Mm -hmm. they give so much away that like even if they win they pay everything out or this is designed where you know you basically if you're not winning you're not paying anything back you know you have to win a certain amount before you're paying basically a small percentage back and it's a way for kind of like the normal person to almost put stock into players you know that yeah it's gonna be a cool deal so i'm excited to see when that comes out a little more again i'm just a small part in that like a kind of advisor and some of you know the players and things but um i i really like that model because there's how many players out there though could have made it just don't have the money yeah right it's expensive man that's why this game we continue to see the same demographic make it to professional golf you know mm-hmm. i mean that we're just not seeing enough people from from backgrounds that aren't affluent get themselves through 
you know, it's in the PGA of America, we need to do a better job of, of getting more PGA members that are women that are coming from, you know, that are minorities or coming from different places. We, we're just not, the game still is exclusionary in that way because of the financial aspect of it. And it's unfortunate because how many talented players did we never see become superstars in order or make contributions to the game in positive ways because it's just too difficult financially to get going. You know, mm-hmm. it's an unfortunate reality of the game. And it sounds like what you're talking about would be really good, man, because we're missing out on probably some incredible talent because yeah. people just can't afford to try. That's too bad. So, so what, what's your, like, what do you think separates some of these players? Cause I mean, you look at the corn fairy tour. I mean, if you walk down the range, they're all cookie cutter swings. They all have good short games. And then you got guys like the, you know, the Spiefs and the DJs and like to you, what's, what's the separator? What, what gets that guy or that girl to the, the next level? It's belief. It is belief, man. Like if you're, if you're at that level, you have the basic skill set, right? You can hit it good enough, far enough, short game's good enough, putt good enough, whatever that is. But I told you the story about AK, right? Mm-hmm. The franchise will be arriving in Norman in late July. <laughs> Okay. I mean, you think of the mindset of somebody that can say that, honestly looking at you in the face, right? I'll give you a Danielle Kang story. So Danielle's number one in the world as an amateur. She's number one amateur in the world. She's won two USAMs. We go through Q school. She doesn't play real well. She got crappy status on the LPGA tour. This is back when you could get to the LPGA tour through Q school. So she's got Symmetra, full Symmetra, maybe a crappy LPGA tour status. Well, we're shopping agents and you know, we're going to different agencies and we go talk to Mark Steinberg, Tiger's agent. We're in a meeting with him and, you know, she's t- trying to decide what agency to go with. And Steinberg says, well, you know, I think you should go out and plant Symmetra for a year. You know, get your feet wet, go out there, win on Symmetra, and just have a full year out there. Then you go to the LPJ tour. And I'm sitting there like, I wouldn't have said that for you because I know her, you know. And she says, Looks him right in the head. She goes, I'm not an effing Symmetra Tour player. I'm an LPG Tour player. I'm not playing on Symmetra Tour. And it was not like a conversation. It was obvious mm-hmm. what was on her mind. And she went to Australia to play the beginning event, finished in the top 25, and got enough money to play the next one. She never played a Symmetra Tour event. You know, that belief in yourself, that is the difference you know in my opinion mm-hmm. like with the with the obvious bottom bar being they're good enough to play on that level the difference from the reason why players get there and players don't it's just a it's a belief system in yourself and it's i don't know how the hell you teach that to anybody i really do not i mean they just have it you know players like that have it i was talking to parker mclaughlin about this and he's he's like there's such a difference like when People just believe they're that good. And we were talking about ego, you know, and how players are always blaming somebody else. And I'll steal his story about Stephen Ames that he told, Stephen Ames told Parker when he got on the PGA Tour, he said, Parker, let me tell you a story. He goes, the quicker you learn this, the better. He goes, if I miss a ball left or right, that's my coach's fault. If I miss it short or long, that's my caddy's fault. But that's the way it is. <laughs> and so the mindset is could have been me right i mean mm-hmm. there's this completely you know arrogant side that i'm i'm the i'm the bomb how can i that's not me 
was the equipment. It was whatever it was. You know, so Parker was telling me a story about how he was best player in Hawaii. He grew up in Hawaii. He's going to play the Hawaii State Championship, junior, whatever. And he his, he was playing metalwood back then. You know, it was the, the time where metalwoods were the norm. But he found this persimmon driver. And he's like this beautiful Hanma persimmon. I thought this thing is cool. I'm gonna take. I'm gonna go play at the state championship with this thing. And he's like, I was so good. There was nobody who was gonna beat me. I could bring whatever driver I wanted to bring. No big deal, you know. He goes, so I proceeded to go and hit six balls OB in the in the state championship with this driver because I couldn't control it. It was horrible for me. He goes, I lost by two shots, and I was like. How did that happen? You know, how could I? Why would I have done that? Why would I have taken this driver? Why would I have taken the other driver? And I was like, because the reason you took the driver is the reason you did make it to the PGA Tour. Your mm -hmm. arrogance about how good you were made you say, "I can take that. It's not going to be a problem." The person who would have thought, well, "I don't want to take a risk and take that driver because it's not my driver, and I, I don't I want to make sure," you know, and they're worried that it could affect their performance. That person never gets to the PGA Tour. And it's a weird way to look at it, but like that level of confidence, that belief system in yourself, those players have that. I mean, it is just, a, and you know, cause you've been, you've been around some really good players now and you like person just is very arrogant. Mm -hmm. I mean, PJ players walk around like they're gods of, on this earth. I mean, they're the, I'm not saying all of them, but many of them are incredibly obnoxious, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I'm embarrassed to know some of the ways these people act, you know, it's like, what a jerk, you know, or another word I would use. I mean, they're just, it's not, not great people. And they're that way in their normal life, but they're on the PGA tour because of that level of confidence and arrogance. And it's hard to guess I split the atom there and still be a humble human being. And certainly there are people that are, are that are out there, but I think you better have that inside of you if you're going to get to the highest level, because it takes, it takes an incredible belief in yourself to go out and do this on the PGA Tour, the LPGA Tour. I don't, yeah, I don't think there's many great athletes in any sport or mm -hmm. any goats thing. Like Michael Jordan, some of the stories behind him. I mean, yeah, you're right. You know, it's Larry like, Bird. Yeah, there there is that. They just didn't have as much media on them back then. But now a lot of these videos coming out where these guys talk about how Michael Jordan would just bully them in practice and things yeah. like that. But but you're right. I mean. But a lot of that, I think, is just is just constant conditioning, though, too. I mean, like Muhammad Ali's famous quote is like, I was saying I was the greatest before I was. I mean, these guys are constantly conditioning that where, you know, I see especially young kids, they're so quick to just go, oh, it was such a bad shot. Oh, I suck. Like, it's hard right. to build that confidence when you're when you're doing that, even innocently. But if you're, again, like, ah, oh, that's not my fault. Next I can't think be of a better. That's a great <laughs> statement. That's, a, that's such a true statement. Like, that self-talk is everything it's everything you know like you can't beat yourself up like that and you can't own you can't internalize a failure you know you have to recognize it didn't work or whatever and get better of course but i think what you said is true like you you have to fake it sometimes you gotta walk i mean there's that whole imposter syndrome i don't belong here i'm not as good as these people you know and then you you start owning that and that becomes your narrative and that's who you are you know you hit, you hit a bad shot. I always, I, that always happens. I always give a good round away. You keep telling yourself that and you will, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of the work I do with young players now is like, I don't want to hear that again. Not again. <laughs> don't ever say it. I don't care if you thought it, but I don't want to come out of your mouth or, you know, hit a bad shot. It's like, I, I'm, I'm going to kill you with the body language enough. 
knock it off. You know, so it's constant from me. Like I am all over body language and self-talk. If I see bad body language or I hear bad self-talk, we're going to have a conversation Then I'm in your face. You know, I, I don't want to hear it. You can get frustrated. I don't have a problem with that. Everybody gets, I, I get frustrated on the golf course. So I'm 53 years old, but it's usually now at this point in my career, rather than breaking clubs over my knee, like I did when I was an idiot kid, <laughs> it's, uh, that wasn't what I wanted right now. Uh, Brady, that's not what you wanted. You know, that's, that's, that's not me. You know, now I frame it differently. You know, that's, that's mm-hmm. not, that's not who I am as a player, you know? And so I've learned how bad that is as hard as I am on myself. I don't even do that to myself anymore. And no matter who I work with, especially young kids, man, they're just not allowed to do it. They're not allowed yeah. to do it. Even the adults that I teach that are amateurs that are titans of business, you know, or whatever celebrities and they hit a bad shot. And they, I'm like, you're not that good. You're just not that good. I don't, you know, don't, don't act like an idiot. You're not that good. Your expectation level should match where you are. Knock it off. You know, that doesn't help you. It's not helping you, but man, it's the hardest thing in the world to learn about golf, right? You, you just can't do it to yourself. Well, it's nuts. Cause I always, I always ask somebody, do you think, you know, acting like that helps you? And <laughs> everyone always says, no. I'm so like, well, so you're just admitting this is self-sabotage, you know, like we know that doesn't help. And I got to a point, I mean, I was a hothead when I was younger. And I just, I remember the exact moments being like, huh, this doesn't really seem to be helping. So, so why don't I just get mad at the end of the round or something and just keep playing? Cause I'm just blowing up rounds and making them worse. Like I remember having that revelation and ever since then I kind of credit myself to being such more of that kind of calm guy and, you know, get mad when the time's right. But when did yeah, that come it, for you? How old were you when that happened? Dude, it was like, I think I was 14 or 15. Oh, oh wow. So yeah, it, I was fortunate when it happened pretty quick i mean i was actually i was actually pretty late to the game like i i started playing when i was 12 started competing when i was 13 so i picked it up kind of fast and golf was a game that humbled me because i mean i i was from a small town with a lot of friends that were good at everything so we won everything in basketball we won everything in football so every sport like we were just winning i was so used to that in golf i you know like anybody i struggled started topping the ball when i was learning um but you know once i started getting some success then i started getting into tournaments and you know again talking about how we frame situations so i didn't have a ton of money i had knockoff king cobra clubs i worked at a golf shop that let me build the set so i'm going up in these tournaments and i I grew up playing in like a goat ranch like literally just mowed down field greens were probably rolling at eight but that's all i knew you know my parents just dropped me off and i played all day i loved it so i started getting these tournaments and i'm out there with the country club kids with all brand new titleist clubs and you know, so I'm sitting here like at first, like, huh, do I not belong here or what, what's going on? And I actually remember the first time I hit it in a bent grass fairway, I didn't know what to do. I swear to God, I had no idea how to hit it. I'm like, why is this grass so small? What is this? So I had to start aiming at the rough because I was blading everything. I had no idea how to hit that <laughs> shot. So, but so I remember again getting to a point like competing with these kids and just being like, instead of I don't belong, I was like, well, I got a crappy golf course, a crappy equipment. I'm still beating you. You need all this good stuff to beat me, you know? So again, chip on I mean, your shoulder. You yeah. Chip on your yeah. Shoulder. So I, I wasn't like outwardly arrogant, but I remember like not letting myself be the victim. And I remember right. having those moments of not letting myself be like just blowing up and self-sabotaging. And I think a lot of that stuff is what helped me become the coach that I am and helping players learn these things. But, uh, cause it doesn't help and it's not healthy. It's not healthy no. to be mad all no. the time. You know, especially no. for the younger kids that are battling all these social image 
uh, social media, self-image stuff. It's it's a different world, man. These kids are dealing with a lot different stuff than I we did. Not about it, no doubt. I wish I had that knowledge. I mean, you came to that way earlier than me. I I, I had some unbelievably impressive moments of stupidity and frustration and anger. Like well, I'm not I said I wasn't dumb back then, but <laughs> oh no, I, I you were nowhere near me. I mean, <laughs> I did some really stupid stuff. Like in college, I, I had broken enough clubs where I didn't have 14 anymore. You know, I was like like down to 11 or something or 12. And then like after a while, I would just bring a club to break, like an old club. So I'd hit, because <laughs> I knew I was going to break club. So I just bring a club and I hit a bad shot. I put that club in the bag and bring the club I brought to break. And I'd break the club because I was just out of my tree. You know, like golf was easy for me when I was younger and it got hard. It was so frustrating, you know. And I had a 10 cup moment during a qualifier one time in college where we played this course called Porter Valley and Southern California and Coach Brackett, who's at Cal State Northridge right now, after I transferred from San Jose, could still tell you the stories about me. They were legendary. He still tells them to his players, you know, 30 years later. But we are on, uh, we played this course called El Cab on Mondays. And I'd always play good at El Cab. You know, it was a traditional parkland, you know, kind of joint. So the driver was always hard for me, like at that point in my life. I was in the golf machine and I had no idea where the ball was going off the tee. And I mean, that. zero. I could chip and putt like a madman, but oh god the driver was so bad and i'd hit it because i was freaking stubborn i was sitting driver i didn't care so anyway we'd go play all cab and i'd shoot even and then we go to porter and porter valley is a stupid little course it's tight with houses on both sides you should not be hitting many drives there i mean you should not be hitting driver but of course i mean i'm a hit driver because that's me so remember one round I get through the first f- five holes and I'm even or one under. I haven't hit one OB yet. It was just a matter of time that I was going to hit one OB. And there's this downhill par four houses on both sides, OB on both sides. And I hated that hole. You know, I just, I was not accurate enough to hit driver. And it was only like 330. You shouldn't even bother to send iron down there in a wedge on the green. But no, I was 20 and I was going to hit driver. And so the first one OB right, second one OB left, third one OB right. And the guys in my group on my team, like Brady, dude, just hit the iron. I'm like, I will run out of balls on this tee or I'm going to hit the fairway. This is how this is going to go down, you know? <laughs> so seven balls later, I finally get the fairway on my seventh drive. I made th- 16 on the whole. I don't know what I made, something like that. You know, the guys in the group are just watching an absolute meltdown of epic proportions. You know, I wish I could watch it now because it had to be funny, you know, tragic, but funny. So the next hole is par five. I had two more balls OB there. Made another 10 or nine or whatever it was. So we go to the par three, eighth hole. And there's water in front. I've got one ball. I'm down to one ball. So I hit it in the water for par three. Put my iron in my bag. Walk past the, the water, past the green, turn right, and just, I'm done. You know, I'm out. I'm Obviously, I checked out a while ago mentally, but now it was officially out over because I ran out of ball. So I walk up the ninth fairway and I get to coach and I remember him sitting on the green. He's looking at me and it's like, what the hell is Brady walking up here for? This is weird. So I'm walking up and he looks at me and he goes, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm done. He goes, what do you mean you're done? I'm like, well, I hit seven out on six and you know, I hit two out on seven and then I lost my last ball in the water on eight. So I'm done. And he goes, I guess you're done. I'm like, see ya. <laughs> oh <laughs> and, my gosh. Like the, the level of like, I'm so impressed with myself that I didn't permanently quit golf. But we talk about, you know, 
life-altering events. You know, at that point, I had looked into the abyss and found that I was in deep doo-doo, you know, mm-hmm. as an athlete, as a player. And I quit playing competitively, and I took the next two to three years and just learned how to play golf again, found the joy again in playing and fixed my mechanics and was able to go play again. I remember the first round I played back was two or three years later. I I shot 71 with seven birdies in a tournament. It was my first competitive round. So I made a lot of bogeys, but I made some birdies too. And I was like, okay, I'm back. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm back. I'm back to being able to play. And, I, and then I was able to go compete again and, and found myself. But it took a couple of years of serious work on the range, digging it out myself and looking at Nick Faldo's swing and some other players. And I learned a lot about the golf swing and what worked for me and what didn't and why I was struggling so much and what my thought processes were and how what I was trying to do is making me worse and all that junk. So we learned from our struggles. And now I empathize with players so much because I went through some pretty dark times on my own too. You know, mm-hmm. I just wish I had, had learned the lesson when you did earlier that you can't treat yourself like that. Mm-hmm. Good for you. Cause I, it took a long time for me. Yeah. I mean, it, def- it definitely helped, but you know, I mean, I didn't go pro nor did I want to either though. You know, I never had the desire. I, th- yeah, I read a book called a good walk spoiled and mm-hmm. that literally crushed my dreams of playing professionally. Mm-hmm. But I always like, I always enjoyed when I did get a chance to get a lesson, I got a lesson like once every two months or something like that from a really, really good instructor. And I always felt awesome in like her ability to just kind of see something and give me a quick adjustment. Mm-hmm. And I could go play. And she was perfect for me because it was like simple things I could understand, like keep your right arm right. further from your body. And I would stripe it. Um, it wasn't the P1, P2, P3. And again, mm-hmm. I don't, I talk about this stuff. I don't, I don't criticize it because I'm sure it's good for some people, but that's just like, I'm just not wired for that. Like that is just few people are. I think few people are wired for that. Yeah. Well, and I mean, again, it goes back to like, are you just trying to sound smart, or are you trying to like make it applicable? But you know, the interesting thing yeah. is talking more. Where I've made a radical shift over the years is kind of moving away from technique and more into practice. So my sessions now are all like small groups and like just practices, mm. and then I kind of coach them through these challenges and. Um, again, I credit all this to you is I try to push people till I piss them off. Like I tell them, like you get, get used to this because I'm going to make the challenges hard enough where you get frustrated and then we can, we can learn to get through that. You know, what do you need to do to prepare for that? Cause if you're struggling in practice, it's going to be worse in the course. Right. So, it's, you know, I try well, to get into the kitchen. About, <laughs> you talk about Michael Jordan, right? I mean, his, his attitude towards it, if training was like Kobe was the same way, like practice was so hard and, they were driving everybody so hard that when the games came along, it was easier, you know? And, and that's why I try and do with my players too. Like I'm going to try and break you in, in training as much as possible with competitive combines and me talking trash and getting in your head. But obviously I'm careful about who I do it with. They have to be on a level where they can have success, mm-hmm. but there's no guaranteed success. You know, they're going to, I want them on the precipice of failure because you don't grow unless you struggle. This is the way it is. You know, if, if everything's too easy for you, you're not going to grow as a player. And I want training. I want technical practice where I'm building their mechanics and all that stuff. But that's all I used to do, mm-hmm. you know. And then as I got better as a coach, and I learned from the Anthony Kims of the world and watching the, the switch get put on and how those guys competed. And then I went back to my own background as an athlete. I'm sure you've done this too in terms of how you've structured your practice playing other sports. Like somewhere in there as a coach, when I was not as as effective as a coach, 
I lost the fact that it was a sport. It was a game to be played, you know, with emotional ups and downs and, you know, challenges mentally and, you know, overcoming adversity. It was always like, well, just, I'll just make the backswing perfect and everything will be wonderful, you know? And, and then I made really good swings and I had players that were really good technically, but weren't getting as much out of it. And it was my fault as a coach. I wasn't doing a good enough job preparing them for those things. And so now I've, you know, I've, I've come full circle, you know, I'll do technical stuff, but I don't want to, you know, mm-hmm. I'd much rather do competitive play. Let's get on the course. I want to watch you play. I want to see you in this situation. What's your mindset and you know, where you want to hit this ball? What's, what's your aim? Get a bad shot. What are you saying to yourself after that shot? Like I'm spending a lot of time doing that now more than I am worrying about P3. Mm-hmm. You know, and back in the day it was P3 was a big deal. Not anymore. Yeah. yeah. I, so again, back to revelations as a coach. Um, I'll, I'll never forget this day. I, I tell the story a lot, but so again, you, you know, I did a lot of technical work and that was my search. I was like Cuomo, but, but with the technical stuff, I went, so I watched Suddy, I, you know, with Todd Stones growing up under him. Um, I watched everything I could on the technical side. I was fascinated with it. I was watching YouTube videos, searching for that secret answer that nobody saw. Sure. So I was getting really good at this and I was starting to build a little stable of juniors out in the Chicago area. And this one girl, particularly, I was like just so high on, she was going to be the, the superstar. So good on the range. So she's playing at Medina. It's a invitational, basically they invite the best kids in the, in the Chicago or Illinois area. Um, 36 hole event on a Monday usually. And I'm like, I'm going to go watch her. She's going to win this thing. We're all going to celebrate. It's going to be great. Well, it didn't go down like that. I mean, she had a rough day. And I just was like, wow. But I mean, I started seeing she would miss a shot, body language, attitude. She was fiery, but you know, she would hit it until like a lie. And like, she just didn't know how to get out of it. You know, side Hills, she didn't know how to play it. She wasn't good out of bunkers. And I'm just like, holy crap, man, I haven't taught her any of this thing. Cause all we do is stand on the range. So I remember having that revelation driving home. Just like, this is just not the way I thought today was going to go down. Um, you know, her dad was like yelling at her and stuff. So I got that whole parent thing going on too, uh, which is a whole other conversation. But, um, but that's, that's kind of what that day forward. I was like, holy crap. So the first thing I did when she got back, she was like, all right, let's go to the range. I'm like, no, you're going to the bunker. I'm throwing you on side hills. I'm going to, we're going to practice everything. I saw you screw up that day. Cause you don't know how to do that stuff. Um, and that, that was kind of a big change for me and kind of going into a longer story here, but you know, when I practiced, I couldn't stand on the range. And you said, like, when you thought about your time as a player, like, I would hit balls for 30 minutes. I'm like, all right. And what I would do is spend about two hours around this short game area at Grand Valley State University, which is where I grew up very close to that. Um, again, just out in the middle of nowhere, but they had a really, really nice short game area. And I would just hit shots, random shots all over the place because I love the creativity, figuring stuff out. So I still have a pretty good short game, and I attribute a lot of it to that. So like the other day I took a couple of kids out and I played with them and I was like, I'm just going to play with you and we're going to do some stuff. Well, what I did is I hit it kind of crappy intentionally to miss the green and then get up and down every time. Ooh. And they're just razzing me like, Oh coach, you're hitting it so bad. And I was like, huh, okay. And then I get up and down from like a crazy spot and they'd be like, huh? So at the end I was like, you know, well, here's what I shot. Would you all shoot? You know, we're going through our stats. I was like, well, I hit one green. And they're all looking at me like, what the hell? I was like, this is why we spend so much time on short game. But I don't know. I thought it was interesting. <clears throat> it's very interesting. And I think people get 
they think golf is perfect. You know, they think the best part of the world is don't make mistakes. And we know that's just not true. I mean, PJ tour average is 11.7 greens in regulation. Mm-hmm. That means they miss six greens around six plus greens around better have a short game average up and downs on PJ tour. You miss a green. And this is a great stat for anybody. If they're watching it, they have the PJ tour app. Every after every round PJ tournament, pick five players. I don't care where they are on the leaderboard. You can go from the top all the way down to the bottom ten players. Pick five. You'll see that the number of greens they miss, cut it in half. That's how many bogeys they made. That's the average. They get up and down half the time when they miss a miss a green. That's the greens where they hit it in the trees and they punched out, and that's the greens where they hit it on the fringe. It still counts as a miss green. Fifty percent up and down. That's that's what it is. That's what you're going to see. And so if they're if they're hitting. 11.7 greens and they're only getting up and down on half the greens they miss they're making three bogeys mm-hmm. what's the average number of birdies on the pga tour 3.6 around okay they're 0.6 under par on average right based on those basic stats so perfection is not going down you know you better be able to play golf you better be able to deal with adversity you better be able to disagree and get up and down you better be able to make eight footers and six footers and five footers and you also better know that you're not going to make a ball and you're not going to get up and down every time. You're not going to hit every fairway. You're not going to hit every green. So there's no perfect going on anywhere. You know, it's just your ability to understand the expectations that you should have on your own game. Try to execute your process from start to finish as good as you can all day long. Deal with the adversity that will inevitably come into a round of golf because it's going to. And, and be able to fight and battle and grind. Because that's what tournament golf is all about. And if you want to get good and you want to be moving up that rank, whether it's you know making my high school golf team or getting the scholarship to go play college golf or whatever it is, wherever ring rung of the ladder you are, you better go compete, man. And you better train it and practice. Because if you don't do that, you're not prepared. And you you knew it as a player, I knew it as a player, and you don't know it as a coach, and, and we can try and help people build that whole thing. But they have to have the mindset of like, I believe in myself and I'm going to go grind, you know, I'm going to go out and grind and give everything I've got all day long. And if you don't have that kind of fight and you don't even bother because there's way too many good players, it's too hard. Yeah. Well, I, I know I've kept you long. Uh, I'll let you go here just a minute. If you got a minute, like you're one of the best I know at setting up praxis. So could you talk me through just a couple good things? Like I have my system for practice, but I was like learning what you do. Um, what are your breasts? Like if, if someone, I mean, this is broad, but like if someone's just like Brady, how do I practice better? I mean, what do you, what do you tell them? Do you have specific, uh, like range things you like them to do? You have, I know you have tons of awesome short game stuff. Like you've said a couple of the last time we talked like hundred feet to putts and stuff like that. It's so good. But like, what are your kind of best, um, things to be doing in practice? You know, have a plan. That's number one on the list. You know, when we were at Duke University and you got to go see Coach K run a practice mm-hmm. too, right? I mean, that was the most impactful thing that's happened to me as a coach probably in the last 15 years. You know, I watched Coach K run a practice. You're freaking kidding me? How amazing was that? One of the greatest coaches on earth. I don't care what sport it is. And Coach you know what's K. Crazy? Like, he didn't say anything. And when he no. said something, it was so like powerful. And then he would Dude. just walk away. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but like, yeah. no, it's just, he was so good, right? Yeah. Saying less, always we know as, as coaches is, is may, way more impactful than talking a lot. But Coach K, like, he was so organized and detail oriented, and John Wooden was the same way. And 
And then at that same trip, I skipped out on the next summit. I went over and watched the Duke women's soccer coach because I still coach women's soccer. I watched Coach Church run a practice. Whew, that was awesome, man. Like I learned more about golf teaching during the Top 100 Summit and didn't attend any of the seminars. I was watching these great coaches coach. And the whole thing is just detailed practice. You know, like I got to sit in on the film room uh, for Duke's women's soccer team. They just played North Carolina. And Coach Church said, Brady, you want to come in and watch the film? I'm like, are you kidding me? Of course I want to come in. It's freaking amazing. So I'm in the room with all the players, the coaches, and they're breaking down game film from the game against North Carolina. These are two of the best women's program, North Carolina's greatest program in history, right? And I got to watch the game film and watch them break it down. And then they took that stuff and they went to go train and they worked on the things in training that they didn't do well in the game against North Carolina. That's exactly what a sport does. But for some reason in golf, we don't do that. We don't look at what we did and say, hey, you know, that last round I struggled off the tee, you know, I couldn't hit it fairway or whatever it is that you didn't do well. The next practice should focus on that, you know, and you want to be detail oriented. Okay. Well, I didn't hit good off the tee. Okay. Was it on a left to right wind hole? Was it trouble off the, off the right? What, what was the combinations of things? Can we train that to, so that next time you're in a better place because you've had success in training to deal with that same scenario. So well, I'm very detailed. Like that specific oh, scenario. So happy you asked. So like, let's say it's a driver thing, right? Left to right wind, obviously hard to come by if you want it on command. But let's say there's trouble down the right and you struggled with all the tee shots with trouble right. That was your problem. Okay. Then we're going to set a combine up on the range, a three ball game, which I do all the time. It's five shots. And we're going to make sure the negative point totals are all on the right. And we're going to teach you how to blow it left. We're going to work on that. And if you have success doing it with a big parameter, I'm going to make it smaller. And if you're still doing well, I'm going to talk trash. I'm going to say, whatever you do, don't slice it. Oh, man, that face is going to get open. I can feel it. You're going to hit this one in the, in the crap. 10 push-ups if you jack this thing right. I'm going to try and break you. You know, and by the time we're done with that session, we'll either have fixed it and given you a lot of confidence that you can deal with it, or we'll realize we still have work to do. It may not be successful, but that's what training should be. But in golf, we don't do that. We take a bucket. We walk up to the stall. We put the balls down. We put our stick down. And we hit seven irons. And we look at our positions and we're all worried about all that crap. And we're not dealing with the actual game stuff that made us not score well. So I don't know if there's a perfect practice, you know, like activity to do, but whatever you're training, you better know why you're training it. And you better go about trying to do it in levels of first, can I do it without any stress? Can I ramp up the stress? And can I still have success? That's what it's all about. I don't care what sport it is. And you can learn more, and I know you feel the same way about this because you're an athlete. You can learn more watching other coaches coach their sport and train their sport than you can from golf sometimes because all we ever hear about in golf is, well, you need left reflection, and then I got to spin on the downside. That's all BS. That doesn't mean anything. Can you do it under the, under the gun, on the course, with a target and a consequence? That's golf. That's what sport is. And I treat golf like a sport. I want it to be that way. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I when I was really diving into this stuff, I mean, I, I really stepped out of golf. I mean, I was looking at football. I was looking at basketball, baseball. I mean, I was looking at all these different things. I mean, I studied the military big time, you know, Navy SEALs. Um, you know, I'm really fascinated with that kind of stuff. But, I mean, you look, I was just looking at who's the best performers and why. And like yeah. you said, I just wasn't seeing a lot of that golf. There's just not a lot of talk about practice, and that's why I'm always picking your brain. 
because you're one of the best I've seen at it, setting up those Appreciate practices. That. But the biggest thing I've learned is you have to test it. You have to know where you're at. Yes. So like yes. when you put that that scoring parameter about it, or like I do a lot of like just nine hole putting courses that'll make hard. You know, you can't three putter. It's a restart. You know, you got to make every short putter. It's a restart type thing. So again, if they're getting to the third, fourth hole and failing, okay, what's off? You know, is your speed off? Is your direction off? Okay, let's let's work on that a little, and then let's get back at it and retest it. You know, because when they start getting through that, well, I'm going to make it harder. I'm going to make the putts harder. I'm going to have more slope type thing. So I think that's the biggest thing. Like I've really learned, and just like I said, training that sort of style of practice has been just so much more impactful. Um, I've just seen such better results for players, which is great because I, 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 I don't take it well when people don't do well. Like I hate that. Yeah. They're trusting no, me, you, you own know? those, you own those too, without a yeah. doubt. I think what, what you said is so true. Like, I, I think people have a misconception about the best players in the world that they put the ball in the middle of the tee box on the first hole, they aim in the middle of the fairway, they sit down the middle, they hit on the green. Then they just play golf like that. That's not golf. You know, golf's about how you miss. Golf's about being able to miss in the place that you want to miss. Tiger talks about it all the time, you know? And so I want players to be able on crap right holes off the tee to hit it in the left ref. That's what I want them to be able to do. And when there's crap on the left side, I want them to be able to hit it in the right ref. That's what I want them to do. If there's water short of a green, I want to make sure that they can hit it solid and get it over the water. I want them to learn how to miss properly. Because then all you got to do is bring the miss in a little. That's it. The, the theory that you can just hit it down the middle of every fairway, just, it's a joke. I mean, nobody plays like that. Nobody plays like that. You know, if you're if you're a fader of the ball, I'm a left-to-right player. Left-to-right wind with crap down the right. There's your scenario, right? Draws the exact opposite. That's the one that's most uncomfortable for a player who fades it, 100%. I have to learn how to hit a pull in the left rough or I can't play golf on a high level. How do I miss it left there? That's what golf becomes. And, and you better know how to do that, right? And so I'm constantly working on that with players. I'm, I'm not asking them to hit in the middle of the fairway. That's not what I'm asking them to do. I'm asking them to miss it good. That's what I want them to do. And I think that that's really kind of all my stuff in training is I want them to keep failing better. You know, if they don't win it, I want them to fail better. So that the next time they're just that much closer to having, you know, as good a performance as is humanly possible, but I want their fails to be good because my fails as a player sucked. Like I would just, you, you could tell I was snapping clubs and hitting 10 balls off a tee if I screwed up, you know, but as time got on, I learned how to make better mistakes and you got to train it. Like you said, man, you don't put that under the gun. You have no feedback whatsoever. You're just guessing as to whether or not it's going to help them. And then you go watch them play and they, and they fail and you know, that was on you because you did do a good enough job. Mm. The worst thing, I mean, I cringed looking back at when I would first start taking people on the golf course, like I would always knock it out in the fairway for them or let yeah, them rehead yeah, a shot or yeah. something. And I just look back, I'm like, what am I doing? That's, <laughs> I mean, they're in those bad situations more often than they're in the good situations. I mean, um, but I think the other thing, I, I try to caddy as much as I can yeah, for my players. Dude, yeah. learn so much from that. It's so again, especially the stuff that you know I've learned with mental golf type and personalities and how to talk to people uh, has been cool. Sides of the tee box, crazy. I mean, it's amazing how many people just plop that thing in the middle. I know, man. So here, I'm gonna tell you my theory, which has been very successful, but it seems to be very controversial. I just want to get your take on it, and I'll let you go. So I don't like people aiming crooked. So the theory 
of, you know, if you're a slicer, aim left or get on the left side, aim right, or I'm sorry, a hooker, get on the left side, aim right and hook it. I want players on the right side, aiming right down the right side of the fairway. And they got all this room left for, and then vice versa for a fader. I want you far left so you can start it left and fade it back to the big part. When you're in the middle, it essentially takes half of each side away. Right. Right. But I don't love the idea of somebody getting on the opposite side where the trouble is and trying to hit away from it and then bend it. So I've always just said, like, let's get on this side. That way, if you miss straight, it's going down the middle. If you draw it, you got all this room left. So that's always been my theory. That seems to have really helped when I, you know, caddy for people. I'll tell them what side of the tee boxes to get on. We've been pretty successful, but I don't know. It seems to be pretty controversial. Everyone's like, what? That's crazy. Well, here's a, here's a great way to find out. Test it, right? Well, I, have. I mean, yeah. That, that's the way. So, like, for me, I'm, I'm a guy that grew up as a drawer, always on the left side of the box. I used to have the tee marker between my feet and the ball. Mm-hmm. I played a couple, you know, a decade and a half of golf like that. And now I'm a fader and I'm always on the right side of the box. But there are certain holes I don't like being on the right side of the box based on how it's set up, you know, wherever, even though I'm a fader. Mm-hmm. But it's an interesting theory. And I'm going to go test your theory. Well, I'm going to go and I go play. Too. Here's my point. To I want to check, like, check it out. If you're on the left side and you're aiming, or I'm sorry, you're a fader. So you're on the right side aiming left. If you miss that thing straight, you're hitting it towards trouble. Well, Plus, it depends on where the trouble aim, is. Well, true. But it, and the more you aim this way, though, isn't that going to intensify the the miss more if you're looking kind of middle of the fairway? That's always it been my be. theory. So, I think yeah, it test it. Let me know what you think. I'm going to test it. I, you know I will because yeah. I'm fascinated. But, but I would say like the – whatever your curve is, you know, which one do you hate more on your miss? Right. So the fade family is the perfect fade. And then the one that starts left and doesn't come back. And then the one that overfades or starts straight and cuts. Right. So those are the misses. You either have a right miss or a left miss, either way, whether you're a drawer or fader. Which one can you live with more? Mm-hmm. Right. So, like for me as a fader, I hate when I see it overcut. It drives me nuts. If I smoke pull one in the left rough, I'm like, no, that's fine. No, that's fine. I'm, I'm cool with that. If I had an iron shot into a green, because, you know, as a fader, short, if I overfade it, I'm short right. If I don't fade it, I'm usually longer left, right? These are the misses that you get in the family of fades, right? Mm-hmm. So I would rather any day for me personally miss with a pole. I can live with the pole. The pole's going to happen, and I tend to make that as my mistake. You know, I tend to be, if and I know dispersions, it should be even, and I completely understand the science behind it, but I would personally rather see a miss go left. It's a, just an emotional response to golf. Mm-hmm. It's not a logical response mm-hmm. to it, but it's an emotional response to it. So, like, you have to, that's a, that's a real thing to deal with with a player. It's probably more real than the science. Mm-hmm. It Im- mm-hmm. impacts a player more. The emotional response to a hole is more important than the science of golf in that moment because it has way more meaning for the player standing over the ball than what the mm-hmm. science is. It can, it can override everything. It's a, it's a massive override button. So you better deal with that, with that emotion, you know? So as a player, I know myself, I'd rather pull it. So if you watch me play, you're like, Brady, you're pulling it all day. And I'd be like, yeah, I know it's pretty good. Isn't it? I'm pretty happy <laughs> about that. You know, like I'll go around here in Hawaii. I play golf every day in Hawaii at the course I'm at. We have, we have two courses. And I literally will miss there's, we have a bunker on the sixth hole on the left side of the fairway. Everybody calls it the Irish bunker. Now 
because of me. That's the Irish <laughs> bunker. Because I'm always in that bunker on six, and it's because there's lava down the right-hand side. So if I'm making a mistake, I hit it in the fairway bunker. It's only a wedge out of the fairway bunker. I hit it on the green all the time, make par. It's no big deal. That's a miss right. I can live with. Right. So I know how to make my mistakes and how to get around a golf course, you know. So I'll play golf and I'll, I'll I mean, out here I'll hit 15, 16 greens all the time. You know, I might miss a few fairways. They're usually in the left fairway bunker. You know, the greens that I hit that I don't hit next to the hole, I'm on the left side of the green. I know how to manage golf for me and to make sure that I'm able to free up and be aggressive with my swing and knowing that my miss is where I want it to be. Like it's so emotional, but it's also scientific, mm-hmm. you know. But if you don't tap into that in a player, like if you said to me, Brady, you're missing left way too often. I don't, I don't want you to aim over there anymore. I want you to bring it around towards the middle of the fairway. I'd be uncomfortable real quickly. You know, that mm-hmm. would that would get into a space where I would struggle. And I think it's just fascinating that even at this point in my career, I'm 53 years old. I'm probably a plus two or so now, maybe a plus three. You know, I don't play all the way back. I never go to 7,000 plus. I've graduated to the forward tee from there. 67 is fine with me. I'm very happy there. But like, I know even emotionally for me, I have things I've got to deal with as I play golf. And like, I want to know those things with my players. And I know you do too, because it does Mm -hmm. impact performance. So important. All right, man. Well, I've kept you for a very long time. I appreciate you being so generous with your time. Um, My pleasure, dude. I always love chatting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I could talk with you for three hours. You know that, but um, so are you taking people on in, in Hawaii or what's, what's your deal there? Is it members only? No, we are. So we're at, I'm at the four seasons, Swalai resort, it's four seasons property. Uh, so we have 350 members. We have two courses. We have a private and a resort course. They hold the champions tour event here, the Mitsubishi in January, uh, a really fun track. Um, and you know, it's, uh, anybody on the Island can come because the the resort course you can come take lessons we have a huge teched out space it's unbelievable but basically i do a lot of my teaching outside mm-hmm. you know because i want to see the club hit the ground yeah, yeah. important and you know that's kind of my thing man yeah so if somebody's in hawaii or in la because i split time between hawaii and la i'm 50 50 so i'm still in i LA was gonna ask you that there. if you're still staying in, in cali a little bit yeah so cal at least two weeks a month i got sometimes you. three yeah. Are you keeping so, still a pretty good stable out there? I am, but I've changed my priorities as a coach from a lot of player development. I don't do that as much now. I'm trying gotcha. to lean off of that. Um, I've done that for 30 years now. And, you know, there comes a time where, I don't know, I do it, but I don't do it. I don't want 20 juniors. I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. You know, I'd rather have, I'd rather have five. You, you know, still working with Hangy? Uh, I'm not. No, we split ways. I so you. 16 years, 16 years together. So it was a long time. It was that good. It was a good run. Yeah. It was a good run. So yeah, he was part of that whole group that I had at the same time. I look back fondly on that time of my career with all those players. Um, but, you know, they were, uh, there were a lot of juniors, a lot of great players, tons of division one players, tons of players that made it to the tour, you know, have won a lot of tour events and stuff that I've worked with, but a lot of them didn't pay very well you know, because they were kids and a lot of it just soaks your time, you know, like you're giving them your soul when you mm-hmm. care about a kid like that. And I'm traveling, watching them play. And, you know, just at that, at that point in my life, it was great. It was what I wanted to do, but I don't do that now. So I'll do it a gotcha. little bit, but I'm not doing as much. So gotcha. I'm old now. I want to, I want to go play some golf myself. Uh, 50 is <laughs> the new 30, right? 
<laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, Bray. I really appreciate you as always. And um, yeah, we'll talk soon. You got it, man. We'll talk soon.